Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you today and thank you for tuning in with us. It's a great pleasure again to open the Bible together. We start a wonderful uh, book, uh, the book of Isaiah, and uh, we look uh, at crisis of identity and today we're moving into crisis of leadership. We have a lot to learn from this book, and I encourage each one of you, if you have a Bible available, just open the Bible or the device you have. In case if you cannot do that, stay with us. We'll be able to share with you as we go. I would like to introduce the panel today, and uh, I will welcome Helen. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here again. Great to be alive. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Will, for joining us also. It's an awesome topic today. Thank you very much, Nick. We look forward to it. And Marek, it's good to have you with us. Great. Thank you, Nick. What an appropriate time to discuss the crisis of leadership. That's so true, Marek. Len, it's good to have you joining us again. Well, thank you for your welcome and hello, listeners. And it's not my birthday today, but we say happy birthday to Helen. Thank you, Len. Yeah. And Lija, uh, thank you for joining. Yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. Now, today, uh, Joe is uh, our facilitator. And um, Joe, we're looking forward for this wonderful study. Thank you for joining us and thank you for uh, preparing this um, Bible study. Thank you. You're welcome. And um, I hope we gain a lot from it. Hand it over to you now. Thank you, Nick. We would like to welcome all those joining us for today's Bible study. Uh, we pray that it will be thought-provoking and insightful, leading to further contemplation and a closer walk with our Heavenly Father. Thank you for joining us today. Lynn, I would like to invite you to offer the opening prayer. Our dear Father in Heaven, as a panel, as we open your holy word this morning, wherein we are going to look to see what treasures are there for us to discover and explore. We pray that the Holy Spirit might lead us as a panel. As we look into history, might we see the lessons that are there for people who are living in this day and age. We pray for every person who's listening to this program that the Holy Spirit might convict them of truth mm. and what they should do. We invite your blessings now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lynn. As has already been mentioned, this week's study is about crisis of leadership. Last week we discussed a crisis of identity of God's chosen people of Israel, and this week we're looking at crisis of leadership has already been mentioned. Helen, could you please give us a bit of a recap of last week's study as a lead into this week's discussion? I love the book of Isaiah, and last week we were studying about a disappointing vineyard and impending judgment. The vineyard was the children of Israel, the nation, and um, they had a choice. They had a choice. The main topics that we discussed last week, I divided it into three groups. The first one was the Lord had spoken, and that was repeated many times throughout and I believe the reason for that is that the author wanted to be made clear that the visions were coming from the Lord and they needed to hear. The second lot was about a sinful nation. And wow, did we see a lot in that one. And um, it was interesting that even through it all, and they were very sinful, 
and we can't sit here in righteous judgment and say that we're not because we are but it was interesting that it de it didn't really it showed to me the long suffering of god you know because the lord even through all this still attempted to pursue his children and um that was the basis of a statement in isaiah 118 when he said come let us reason together I found it interesting that, you know, God's work was endeavoured to restore his people to himself. He gave first gave them prosperity, but they didn't serve him. Then he sent them warnings, but they refused to listen. And finally, there was a fire of the judgment. You know, he, he showed us that the Lord raised his people and he did everything he could to protect them and to show his great love. And right throughout, and even as we went up to chapter 5, it showed God's care for his children. It's really, really sad that when you look at sin, it can be can not necessarily exclusively a wrong action. It also can be a thought, such as resisting the authority of the Lord over our lives or an act of inner rebellion. And Israel, they faced a twofold threat from their sin. In sin that plunged, plunged people into the worst acts of iniquity, and that leads me into this week's study too, who the leaders were, but it was also sin that moves people into a formal religious experience that lacks any saving grace. So their religion was really a religion of show, of appearances only. They seemed to be alive on the outside, but they were dead within. And for me, I thought a lot about really what more could God do or God have done for this nation? We all have choices, and it brings us down to today where what more could he do when he died on that cross? So here we have, we're going into a, another chapter of Isaiah, chapter 6, which gives us an insight to Isaiah, his call as a prophet, but it also shows us the history of the leaders and um, the crisis of the leaders and how the leadership affects the nation and how the nation affects the leadership. The words of Moses and Joshua should have reverberated in the people's ears because both of them said, if you obey the Lord, all will go well. If you disobey, it will not go well. You will suffer setbacks. And I think what Isaiah said to the people from God was basically the same thing. Obey, it'll go well for you. Disobey, and you're going to have hardships. It reminds me again of the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy where God gave a list and said, you know, if you follow me, these blessings will come. If you don't want to follow me, that's fine, but I will withdraw my, my blessings. And when you read the blessings and curses back in Deuteronomy, who in their right mind would actually choose the curses? And yet when you look at this, what happened in Isaiah, that's exactly what they did. God gave them warning after warning, you know, and yet they still chose the wrong way. Yes, unfortunately, from what we've studied, and I guess it'll be a bit of a theme going throughout Isaiah, people of Israel, people today, think that an outward form of religion is sufficient to please God. And clearly God does not want that. He wants the genuine seeking after him. So I think that's been a really good recap. Uh, let's move on, and we are introduced to a king. I believe, Len, you have done some research on this king. Can you tell us his name and a little bit of insight into his achievements and um, his, well, his life, really? We have a king introduced in Chapter 6 of Isaiah. His name was Uzziah, or Uzziah. I call him Uzziah. 
not to be confused with the prophet Isaiah. He was the son of his father, but at the same time, or his father was Amaziah, at the same time, King Uzziah ruled together as co-regent with his father for quite a long time. Prior to his father's death, Uzziah became king in his own right. And he was quite a progressive king. He um, uh, encouraged people to be productive. He was aware of the threats from neighbouring nations. He built up the fortifications of the city of Jerusalem. And he also invented various war weapons, including some that I've read about the Romans using later on. Quite a bit of his record is in Second Chronicles 26. But I want to pick a couple of things out. He basically followed a pattern of his father. And Amaziah started out well, served the Lord like we were saying before. If you are faithful to God, you will be blessed. If you're unfaithful, you can't expect blessings anymore. And this is what's happened with Amaziah. But Uzziah started out very well. I'll read in verse 4 of chapter 26 of Second Chronicles, where it said, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. And I would like to add in at first. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. I'd like to say this. Any organisation, whether it's a company, a school, a religious body, whatever, even a kingdom, is as good as its leader. And when the leader serves the Lord, usually that particular organisation or kingdom flourishes. When the leader does what's wrong, then that organisation starts to deteriorate. So Isaiah started out very well. He was a God-serving king. He consulted the high priest, Zechariah, and the kingdom went very well. Yes, well, thank you for those comments. Um, what I thought was particularly interesting for me, as I love gardening, is that he loved the soil. You know, agriculture flourished under him, and they were planting of vineyards, and so it would have been really at its height. Another lesson which, for me, uh, it's, it's very relevant, uh, also coming from a background, you know, working the soil, farmer growing up uh, in, in that sort of environment, is that when you work the soil, you are uh, not dependent on others and you are not tempted to go to take from others, which many wars are happening today because they want to get from others. You know, it's a little lesson here, but because of the progression, even in the kingdom, was because he set up in his own kingdom things which uh, were uh, fruitful, which were, gave uh, lots of uh, uh, benefits to its people. And uh, it just come in my mind today because we are talking about crisis of leadership. 
And when uh, some, as Len mentioned, as uh, because we are shaping the leadership. If we are not uh, keeping them accountable for what they're doing, uh, then they will do all sorts of things. And in our case, we may dig a little bit more into the fact that who is the actual leader? Is the king in this case? Or have they forgot the living God? Yes, thank you for your comments. I guess it's worth mentioning that during Uzziah's reign and, um, and Jotham's, there was relative peace, relative peace. Assyria had a quiet period of about 100 years, and some commentators call that the Jonah effect. And so they were in, they were, there was just not much. They went into, into darkness. There's not much recorded for about a period of 100 years. And then, of course, we get Tiglath-Pileser arise. And I guess we will be studying that further on in the lesson um, when Israel is under attack and, and so forth. But during Uzziah's reign, there was relative peace. So there was opportunity for lots of progress and innovation. And I guess that was reflected um, in some of the records that um, we have been captured in Second Chronicles 26. So, yeah, it would have been yeah, very successful and people would have been happy and, and op- there would have been much to be grateful to God for. However, there was something that happened in verse 16. Um, and we understand that God was displeased with this. Marek, perhaps you could give us some insight into what happened. Hmm. It's kind of interesting to note that following that period of prosperity, we see moral and spiritual decay. And we see that not only in the people, but we see that in the king himself, because Chronicles tells us very clearly that after Isaiah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. It's, it's interesting to note how following that particular pattern, presumption sets in. And here, the king who was appointed to be a king, not a priest, steps well outside of his boundary and enters the temple to bring in incense. You know, when we look at the guidelines that were set in Leviticus and and, uh, and other passages there, it was very clear who was permitted to enter into the temple, how they were to prepare the whole concept of the holiness of God. And, uh, you know, Isaiah here mentions it as well. He saw the the uh, the Lord uh, sitting on his throne and, uh, you know, his presence filled the temple. Isaiah was absolutely flippant and defiant in doing what he did, and that was very much associated with the fact that he lost respect for God, he was unfaithful to God, and, uh, and, and uh, God was so displeased with him that in response to his actions, and the fact that he did not listen to the courageous priests who confronted him, he was covered with uh, leprosy. It's interesting, I think God in his kindness dealt with Isaiah in a way that uh, that acknowledged the, uh, the misconduct. But, you know, when we look at the experience of the sons of Aaron who entered with, to the temple of unholy fire, fire destroyed them instantly. Here, I think God in his mercy did not destroy Isaiah, but instead leprosy covered his 
face. And from there on, he never re-entered the temple of God again. There are some incredible lessons in that for us. When we approach a holy God, one who is perfect, we have to approach in the appropriate way, showing respect, acknowledging him for he is. We cannot be flippant and disrespectful and presumptuous in the way that Isaiah was. So this was a, a significant point in, in the king's life and indicated uh, the downfall that had occurred spiritually and morally. Mm, thank you. It wasn't that unusual for a monarch of the time, Eric, as you would have been, I'm sure, be aware, uh, for a monarch to actually consider themselves both king and high priest and often God. We know that from history that, um, you know, the pharaohs, even the Caesars, considered themselves this dual role of God and king, God and Caesar. Um, and so it, perhaps some of the influence from the nations around them, where their kings, the kings of the pagan nations, were also seen as high priests or gods or children of gods, with a little g, that they were, he felt entitled to enter the sanctuary. And I think, I guess, there's another king, you know, another king that comes to mind that um, who let all his successes and achievements get to his head and um, forgot to thank, you know, or to acknowledge where his blessings came from. And I think we'll all remember that king as Nebuchadnezzar. So we have a king here, Uzziah, who had lost touch with his position in relation to God and had lost touch with God himself. Len, you have a comment? Yes. Uzziah, in the earlier part of his reign, was instructed in the things of God by Zechariah. In fact, I think it's good for any leader to have a good mentor, a good advisor, and Zechariah did that. But Zechariah must have died in the meantime, and there was a new priest. But during this uh, period of prosperity, Isaiah became very powerful. And it says in my Bible, his pride led to his downfall. And I couldn't help but thinking, pride comes before a fall. Mm. And I think there's something important here. We sometimes think, when things are going well for us and God is blessing us, we might become a little bit self-conceited as well. And it's something that we need to remember. It's God who gives us every heartbeat. It's God who gives us every breath. We don't have it of our own. It's a gift from him. And so there's a big lesson in just this little part of what we're studying about today. This King Uzziah, I'm going to use Uzziah because to make a difference between him as a king and the prophet Isaiah. So this king Uzziah became so powerful in his nation that because he was also a commander of an army of, uh, it was a big army, 307,500 men, and he provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and uh, sling stones for the uh, the entire army, and he designed machines to use for towers and uh, of the corner uh, defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. Anyway, 
he became so powerful, but that he was thinking that he is God and nobody could uh, defend him. So because of that, when he entered in, in God's court and he defiled it, he was thinking he, that he is the only one God. He, there was not any other God above him. And because of that, he did whatever he wanted. So, uh, as it was said, pride led him to his downfall. And this is a, a, a lesson for us also. Yeah. And I, I just want to draw here a bit of a lesson. Uh, Marek, you spoke about this and, and Len and others. Is this a little bit more like, um, as we understand today, separation of uh, religion and state, which God... Uh, taught his people who's entitled to do the work in the temple and who's chosen, uh, you know, to to rule uh, politically, if you like. And in this case, Uzziah forgot about that thing and he stepped over. That's what you mentioned, uh, Marek, a bit earlier. Now, we can see today the same thing when big political powers they um, feel that they can, uh, they have power, you know, they can control things. They step over the border. They do things which are not required for themselves to do. Can we fall in the same trap like this king, Uzziah, when he saw that, what you just mentioned, all of you here, that he's powerful, that he's uh, uh, successful, he stepped over the, the boundary. And he did the thing which was not allowed for him to do. Can we fall into the same trap in various aspects? And probably this is the lesson we need to learn uh, today when we face crisis of leadership. And even today, we may think that this world is uh, ruled well. I mean, we can see so big discrepancies in between this form of leadership it showed me here how there was such a crisis of the leadership you know this is what we're talking about this week that although Uzziah was king Uzziah was generally he was a good king with a long and prosperous reign and as you said he was very powerful he was very influential until he became proud and disobedient and many of the people that was the time when they also turned away from God. You know, just imagine what that must have been like the day that he, um, one commentator said it was probably a day of a high festival when he made a feast to the lords and chief captains and the power of the wine, the power of yet more intoxicating flattery prompted him to do this deed that was, was to his ruin. And you just imagine, here was this splendour of this king, comes to the temple demands in a very haughty, prideful way, and he usurped the authority of the priest to burn incense on the altar. What I admire too is the priests, valiant men, they actually rose up and stopped him, even though he was a king. How many of us would be bold enough to even do that, you know? And I think scripture shows us that for a moment, you know, Uzziah, the king, he literally was standing face to face with the priests, but he got so angry, so furious with them, you know, and I guess maybe they even thought, should we even lift a hand against a king, a king such as he? Because he was very, very powerful, but it was to his ruin because, you know, he let pride and um, flattery take over. And, you know, pride was the original sin, as we know, and it brings disobedient with it. 
And our disobedience too may also influence others to disobey. We need to be very careful to always give glory to God. It's interesting to note the account says that he raged against the priests. Yes. <laughs> Raging against the priests. Well, we, we, we hear about road rage and so forth. But <laughs> there is a king who really knows no limits, no boundaries, very disrespectful, arrogant, and uh, stepping over certain boundaries that he should not have stepped over. If we look today in, um, in our time, you know, the nation of America has a very nice slogan to say that, in God we trust. Now, <laughs> how important is to see, is that a reality? Because that was the case in uh, Uzziah's time. Was Uzziah respecting what God's uh, plan was with his people? Or he was starting to dictate what he thought it would be even better? You see, we can easily see the fruition in our own time. When a kingdom becomes powerful, then they can dictate things or thinking that they can do whatever they like. As we can see that um, his pride, Uzziah's pride and arrogance, he's feeling entitled to go before God and minister as a priest would. He obviously felt good enough, you know, to approach God almost on a face-to-face level. But I'd like to ask Helen, what the right attitude we are to have when we, what's the right attitude to have when we approach God based on Luke 18, 14? Um, does God really need to know and hear about how great we are? I don't believe so. This whole section in Luke is talking about a parable of two men who prayed. And um, when you think of these two men, there is such a contrast between them There is the Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. And, and you know, I I find it really, well, almost disheartening when you think what the Pharisee said. You know, he he virtually said, I thank you, God, I'm not a sinner like everyone else. And um, to me that was pride. You know, he said, I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery, I'm certainly not like the tax collector. So he was comparing himself to the tax collector, you know, that he fasted twice a week and he gave a tenth of his income. So here we see the background to this parable. And But then when you saw the tax collector, the contrast was so obvious, you know. The tax collector stood a little way back. He didn't even want to lift his eyes up. He prayed and instead he beat his, his chest in sorrow and he said, Oh, God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And verse 14, the one that you asked for, um, Joe, says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified. He turned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what tells me what prayer is. How do we come before the throne? We are coming before the king of kings, before the universe's creator. You know, he is just so awesome. And yet Mm. sometimes we forget all that. He's also our best friend. But, you know, we need to come in humbleness. Don't let pride in our achievements cut us off from God. You know, see God in all his glory. And I actually went back and I did a comparison too with King Uzziah. And when you see, you could put his name in place of the Pharisee and Isaiah, the prophet, in place of the tax collector. Uzziah, the, the king, he was very proud. But Isaiah, 
he was very humble. So I think that's a lesson for us here. Yes, we'll, we'll get to that. That's a really good point you make there. Mahatma Gandhi uh, expressed his attitude uh, to pride uh, when he said before a number of people, I claim to be a simple individual, liable to err like any other fellow mortal. I own, however, that I have a humility enough to confess my errors and to retrace my steps. Uh, if that was the way people had to act uh, when they were faced with temptation, it would have been good. We need to approach God in absolute awe and reverence. Thank you. Beautiful words, Will. It brings us to the beginning of what actually happened in Isaiah chapter 6. And just a little bit of background. Isaiah's message, if the first couple of chapters which we have studied last week or anything to go by, have have come to the leadership and the people was a bit of a shock. Some of them would have been taken aback in the face of their prosperity and success. Some may have been even surprised. Some may have been amused. Isaiah had, after all, lost his mind. Others would have been seriously offended. Fancy comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Every effort was being made to adhere to the requirements and to all intents and purposes, it would appear that the nation was godly. But all God saw was whited sepulchres, to use a phrase from the New Testament. Isaiah may have become discouraged and may have come to doubt himself and his ministry. Maybe he was even being accused of being a false prophet. After all, there was no evidence of the peril they were about to face. So it's a bit like Noah where he's saying there's a flood coming and there's no evidence for it. So Isaiah, not unlike many other prophets, needed affirmation and reassurance and fortifying for what was ahead. This brings us into Isaiah 6 and the opening text. Will, can you please take us through that? You know, one would expect that the throne, that the approach to the throne of any king would command reverence and awe, but especially so of Isaiah seeing the throne room of the universe. He stands before the almighty God. And, uh, you know, I think that we have heard of the terminology of blaze of glory, but it's especially true of this account in Isaiah chapter 6. I'd like to read um, Isaiah chapter 6 from verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this had a tremendous response uh, from Isaiah. It was perhaps something that Isaiah needed to see to help ground him. What was the response, Helen? What was Isaiah's response to this overwhelming scene? It's said in chapter 6, verse 5, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, a little bit different from the King James, but he said, Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies, One commentator said, as Isaiah beheld this revelation of the glory and majesty of his Lord, 
he was overwhelmed with a sense of the purity and holiness of God. How sharp the contrast between the matchless perfection of his creator and the sinful course of those who with himself had long been numbered among the chosen people of Israel and Judah. I just couldn't help thinking, have we ever got to the stage where we said, woe is me, I'm such a sinner. And have we ever felt that? I believe the closer we come to the Lord, the more we will feel that. And the beautiful part about that is that while we're yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. You know, he accepted us. So here we see Isaiah would have realized that God is absolutely in control. That was an encouragement, but it also showed him the wickedness of his ways too and the ways of his nation. What I'm about to say is a bit of a play on words, but I think it has a significance in relation to what we've just been talking about. The word woe, woe is me. It basically means I stand condemned. But you know there's another word, woe. It's spelled W-H-O-A. And you say woe to a horse if you want it to stop. And so I can see it in these two ways. When a person is pretty cocky about themselves, it's time to say, whoa, stop being cocky and take notice of the difference between you and the mighty God who created you. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say also, Joe, at this time, we are now uh, understanding that the nation of Israel faced some crisis because uh, the king Uzziah is dead. The people trusted in his uh, leadership and success. And it's interesting enough that uh, God is showing Isaiah in his vision who God is. And Isaiah was overwhelmed because probably for that period of time when uh, Uzziah was in control and in charge, people were just living happily, you know, forgetting about the Almighty God. And usually when you have political crisis, people are looking to a different party to keep going, you know, to continue, you know, the the country to function. But in this case, God is reminding his people that he's the one to be looked upon. And Isaiah definitely understands that. And he cries out that he's doomed, you know, because he saw God and he may die. Well, he certainly didn't deserve to live as far as he was concerned. Yes. I don't think you mentioned the word crisis a number of times, and we all have. But I don't think the the Jewish people and their king understood the crisis they were in. I don't think they understood the depth of it. They thought a crisis would be like being under siege, an imminent threat, military threat to them. They didn't realize that the crisis God was concerned was something that was in probably largely invisible to them, and so. I guess this is something that we need to keep in mind. And I thank you, for Helen, for bringing in to mentioning that God was in control. God is in control. And that really fortified Isaiah. My next question would be, Will, what was God's response to Isaiah's fear, his trepidation? What was God's solution? We find that when Isaiah saw the resplendent glory and majesty of his Lord, He was overwhelmed with a sense of purity and holiness of God. He saw God's matchless perfection 
and, uh, and that was in con strong contrast to the depravity of his people. What follows here is that God sees Isaiah's contrition and submission, and he sends a messenger from the sanctuary in heaven, carrying a coal of fire from the altar. I'd like to read from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We need to note here that the fire that was used in the services of the earthly sanctuary in the wilderness was started or ignited by God directly from heaven. The priests were not permitted to light the altar or the censer with fire of their own making. If they did, it was called strange fire and uh, punishable by death. In this whole account, we see a reference to the sanctuary. I'd like to add that uh, it may be a hard lesson for every Christian to learn that only God can light the fire in the hearts of his people as well, trying to motivate or inspire ourselves, even save ourselves by our own efforts is futile. It's all God's work. And so I see this whole attitude of Hosea steeped in contrast to the, the images and the symbolism of the sanctuary. Yes, so true. I think it was very interesting to, to notice that the, the main reason for taking the coal um, from the altar was to light incense. And, you know, here we see that in ra rather than right lighting a um, for the incense, it was Isaiah became the incense, if you like. You know, just as holy fire lights incense to fill God's house with holy fragrance, it also lights up the prophet to spread a holy message, which you're coming to to Joe. And I just think that it's just so interesting when I read into it and see all the symbolism of the sanctuary is there, but he became literally the incense. Now, after this experience, there was a, Isaiah was consumed by a sense of urgency. He was cleansed and fortified, and he hears a question being asked. And what is that question, Ligia? In Isaiah 6, verse 8, the prophet hears a voice of the Lord, and the Lord is asking, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? So the Lord is not pushing Isaiah and he's not commanding him, you go, because I made you a prophet. But he asks him. So it's a question of invitation. And Isaiah, being touched by the Holy Spirit, being purified. So in that moment, after he felt unworthy and impure, and he felt condemned because he has seen the Almighty, and overwhelmed, he, he felt straight away purified. And he responds to God's call by volunteering. And he said, here am I, send me. So this is very important because when before he felt he stayed condemned before the Almighty, he felt purified and he felt that he's worthy to go to work for God. 
and he failed to be called a prophet as God made him a prophet from from before that. This is a call for us also. God calls every one of us. He's not pushing. He's not commanding. He offers a call of invitation. And if we are having a stronger relationship with the Lord, the Holy Spirit can purify us and make us worthy for his call to go out there to, to be in, uh, of God's help. Yes, thank you, Lita. That is really, really good because he is. He's, there's an eagerness about him. He doesn't look around and say, uh, is there someone else who could do this? Um, he doesn't make any excuses. He says, here am I, send me, and there's something really positive and active and uh, proactive about it. One man, like Isaiah, I need only one man to ch- start to make changes. In this case, it was Isaiah. In the time of Reformation, it was Luther. In um, other times in history, with one man, it can start a Reformation. And that's, I want to see the transition with us, where we are today. What sort of lesson we give to the listeners there? Because everyone is confused today. They don't know the direction in which to go. But God is appealing to you, to me, to one person. Yes, thank you. Lynn. Now, what was the message that Isaiah was to take to God's people? I understand it was a, a, a cryptic one. Can you please take us through it? Yes, well, you use the word cryptic. I would say it's probably satirical. But <laughs> nevertheless, God gave this message, verse 9 and verse 10 of Isaiah 6. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You know, the most important bit of that, I believe, is that last little bit, and understand with their hearts. Now, in preparing for this study, I looked up six different Bible commentaries. And what God is saying according to these commentaries is, all right, you're in your sin. You don't want to accept the things of God for yourself. I'm going to let this continue, probably with the purpose in mind that when people get thoroughly sick of their own sins, they might eventually turn to God. Now, if you read through the rest of the book of Isaiah, it is an appeal to come back to God. But this is slightly satirical. It says, you go on in, in your blind ways and you'll get sick of your sins after a while because what I said before, if we, if we are faithful to God, he will bless us. This was said by Joshua, Moses, and other prophets, when things go so bad for you, you will possibly turn to me for relief. I've got one little quote I would like to share. It's this. There is none, none so blind as he, who cannot but will not see. And this applies to many people. 
some people just refuse to see that God is merciful and kind and wants to be good to them. Thank you. And Marek, there are similar words used in Matthew 13. Um, Would you perhaps like to share what Jesus said? Well, we've got quite a number of passages in in the New Testament that uh, uh, share a little bit of light on this topic. We have uh, Matthew 13, we have John 12, where the uh, the words of the prophet Isaiah are being cited. Uh, Jesus himself, when he came to to minister to people and was obviously accredited by God, as we know from all the miracles he performed, people would still resist and not believe. And, uh, and it must have been a source of frustration for him because he made it very, very clear that even though you have seen these miracles, you still don't believe. In Isaiah, it would kind of seem as if somehow... Uh, God had hardened the hearts of these people, but in actual fact, we must not attribute evil intent to God. Every human being stands without excuse, the Apostle Paul tells us in, in Romans, because the evidence that is given to us is sufficient for us to convince and convict us. And the role of the Spirit is to enlighten our minds, to make them receptive to the Word of God. But when we reject the soft voice that speaks to our hearts repeatedly, we make a choice which ultimately results in the hardening of our heart. It is not God who hardens the heart. You know, when we look at the story of Pharaoh and the passages there attribute uh, certain uh, uh, influences of God there and say that God hardened his heart, there are just as many passages there saying that Pharaoh hardened his heart through the choices that he made. The Israelites hardened their heart through the choices they make. The only way that we can soften our heart is to cultivate a spirit of acceptance, of being receptive to what God has to say to us. And so, you know, when we read these verses in Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, where their ears become heavy and their eyes become blind, shut, and so forth. And when Christ makes the same uh, same statement in relation to the Pharisees and the people of his time, it's the choices that people have made that ultimately lead to a state where God hands them over to their own desires, as Paul would put it. And, uh, and that is directly the outcome of decisions that we undertake so so it, it's kind of interesting to, to look at the parallels between Isaiah 6 and uh, Matthew 13 and uh, John 12 and Romans and Thessalonians and so forth God in his mercy provides all the revelation all the light that we need but it's our choices that result in the hardening of the heart and resist mm. to God Lynn, Lynn you've got a comment yes As I understand it, sometimes God has to let people sink in the mire of their own sins in order to come to an understanding of the situation. For example, the prodigal son. He was having a grand old time until he was amongst feeding the pigs and the hungry and he eventually came to himself. And I believe that this is perhaps one of the tactics of God to draw people to himself 
that when people are thoroughly sick of what's happening to them, then they may turn to him. Because that passage I read, and Isaiah asked the question, for how long, O Lord? How long are you going to stand off from these people? And then an answer was given, until the cities lie ruined. In other words, until things have utterly collapsed around you, then you might turn to back to me. And I think this happens in real life in our day and age. Absolutely. There is such a thing that I was reading about called um, belief perseverance. And this is maintaining a belief despite new information that firmly contradicts it. Such beliefs may even be strengthened when others attempt to present evidence debunking them, a phenomenon known as a backfire effect. So it would appear that, you know, we could be, God could be and has sent multiple messages, multiple warnings. And these in in themselves, because people's worldview is threatened or it's requiring some kind of change from them, actually consolidates them in their own errors, in their own uh, poor choices, so that they, and the, the more evidence that you gather and show, the more hardened they become in their position, entrenched in their position. Um, it's something that is worth considering even for us today. I mean, this is, this is you know, recent science and um, research. So, um, and I don't think it's new that people have been the same forever and a day. So it's something that's worth considering when we are refusing, when we are saying no, uh, no to something, no, no to God or wait, or maybe next time God, that we need to consider this, whether um, we are actually holding on to belief perseverance or the backfire effect. You know, Joseph, it's, it's kind of interesting because whenever there is this dissonance, we try to resolve dissonance one way or another, either by consolidating our views or, or accommodating new information that might come to us. But, but what's really interesting in our psychiatric literature today, we have a new form of an adult and child disorder, which we call an oppositional defiant disorder. (laughs) And, you know, you read these passages of Scripture and you think of Pharaoh, you think of all these other leaders, and you can't help but realize, boy, this disorder has been around for a while. You know, when we reject the Spirit of God, what happens? We become so resistant. We become oppositional. We become defiant. We become angry and resentful and and vindictive. And all of that is just this progressive falling away purely on account of the fact that we are we are rejecting that which God wants to wants to share and uh, and and uh, his his guidance and uh, and his spirit so it's kind of interesting to look at it from that perspective as well and and also just to add on that uh, Marek uh, we're talking about here that um, you know as you mentioned earlier God, God hardened uh, the heart of Pharaoh in terms of discipline I believe your parents Sometimes the child may even come back and say, please, 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 you know, don't do this or that. But the parent made his mind and the parent is going to take the child to, to discipline. Now, when those things happen with the Pharaoh or with the children of Israel, many times God disciplined them to be able to uh, 
them to come back and really find God. Because too often, and we live in a time when, um, when we don't want to say anything to anybody because of fear of offending. But if we are going to represent God, we are not going to offend people. We are going to um, bring knowledge and understanding and a way of restoration. Okay. I believe, Will, you have some uh, a thought to share with us in Peter, Second Peter? I think that we must remember that uh, however we look at this hardening of the people's hearts and so on and blaming it on God, it just doesn't fit with what Peter says in Second Peter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then he calls, goes on to say that the Lord, however, will come like a thief in the night. I think that we need to, we need to never attribute to God a, uh, a vindictive and hard and spiteful attitude. God wants us to be saved. Mm. Amen. Have God's expectations and desires for his people changed today in the secular age? What does God see in me? I'm inclined to say like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. But we can be assured that God will cleanse and supply our impoverished, destitute state from his own goodness and enable us to be effective leaders for him in our homes, workplaces and places of worship. To help us to be the people and person he has always planned us to be. But this can only be if we, like Nick, say we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Thank you for joining us for this study and trust that you have been blessed from the study of God's word. Lydia, would you like to close with prayer? Yes, thank you. Glorious Father in heaven, thank you so much that you showed us a comparison between unwise king Uzziah and the wise prophet Isaiah. Father, please help us to place you first in our lives, to honor you in our hearts, minds, life, and actions, to be merciful and humble, to approach you with awe and reverence, to place yourself first in our lives. Father, we asking you today kindly to touch us, to touch our lips, our hearts, our minds with a live burning coal, to receive moral purification, to be able to stand in awe in your holy presence, and volunteer like Isaiah for the special mission and to say, here am I, Lord, send me. Father, please bless us with your holy power, with your Holy Spirit and strength, and with your armor to be able to work for you in this great commission for the salvation of others. Father, Thank you so much that you gave us a royal commission. Help us, Father, to be 
there for you, to live in a stronger relationship with you, to be able to receive by you. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. Father, thank you for listening to us and thank you that you will answer us as you always did. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you everyone for uh, participating in this uh, Bible study. We started with the crisis of identity. Then we learn today about the crisis of leadership. And when you think of these things, you straight away may think that your, your world is failing apart. We are inviting you next time to look at this and to try to understand how our world may still be in place if we give ourselves to the right uh, one to guide us and direct us. And that's Almighty God. I will invite you to join us again. Until then, may God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.